Hello and welcome to episode 194 of the In Squash podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Gibson, and uh, today David Campion will be uh, capping our tribute to Malcolm off. This is our third and final uh, tribute to Malcolm. We'll start, we started things off with uh, Simon Park uh, last week, then Nick Taylor, and now David Campion will be coming on. Uh, um, as we all know by now, uh, sadly, Malcolm passed away on May 10th, and uh, David uh, being the stepson to Malcolm and uh, brother to James, um, uh, David was 12 when when James was born uh, to uh, David's mother, and uh, really uh, this podcast is really worth listening to. I'm not going to lay uh, very much groundwork uh, because it speaks for itself. Uh, there's so many tremendous anecdotes in terms of uh, Malcolm as a person, as a parent, as a coach, as a father, and what he's done uh, for James, for David, for Squash. There's so much. Uh, in this uh, I know you're going to really enjoy it Dave, David does a tremendous job here as I'm sure he did uh, eulogizing uh, at the funeral there last Monday so enjoy this one episode 194 with David Campion capping off our tribute to Malcolm Wilstrip. Jerry how are you hey how are you David, good right, to see so, you. That's awesome. Sorry. Well, firstly, David, uh, I just want to express my deepest uh, condolences uh, on uh, Malcolm's uh, passing. Obviously, uh, a tough time for everybody, but uh, uh, you know, everyone's celebrating uh, his life as well, and he had such an impact, obviously, on the people closest to him. But not only them, uh, so many others. And uh, again, uh, you know, condolences to you and your family. Yeah, thanks, Jerry. It's a huge loss, isn't he? And I think what we've seen with the messages from around the world, he obviously impacted many people. He had a profound effect on their life. And um, yeah, it's, it's a huge loss for not just for Pony Frat Squash Club, but for the whole squash community because mm. those people that he's impacted, they, they've gone on to do things all around the world, you know? Yeah. Um, so, as you I mean, yeah, he, he had an impact on on i think everybody i mean he had so he obviously with james and with he was always there with james when he was younger and uh at, at the big events and you know people watching that notice that and and notice his commentary and and the things he had to say after those matches and uh you know he definitely had a huge impact uh, well well beyond uh, uh england i i think <laughs> yeah yeah of course, and um, it, it's going to be missed, you know. And with Malk, it's the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, I think mm. you know Nick Taylor touched on it. He's like Marmite, you know. You either love him or you loathe him. There's no <laughs> middle ground with Malk. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think that was the, why people had so much huge respect for him because you knew exactly where you stood. Yeah, um, and you cross those boundaries and you feel the wrath, and that's it. And it doesn't matter whether you're a young junior or a world class player. He'd, he doesn't care about that. He just uh, just wants you to behave properly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, before we get into uh, sort of uh, your tribute, and I really appreciate your time uh, today. I know you must be uh, incredibly busy. I know the funeral was a few days ago, right? It was on uh, Monday, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was on Monday, yeah. 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 So we'll, uh, b- but before that, I, I mean, I know most people will know who you are, but, uh, you know, there might be, North Americans uh, who who may not who who are listening. So uh, uh, obviously you're you're the uh, current head coach for for uh, the English uh, national team, and you've been coaching 
uh, in, I'm not sure for how long in that capacity, for, but for a few years. Uh, you had a playing career as well, which uh, unfortunately was, uh, uh, you had to stop prematurely. So just give us a, a little bit of a backstory, if you don't mind, Dave, before we get going uh, on your playing um, days. Uh, I know you, you had to retire, I guess, quite uh, at an early age. Yeah, I had a successful junior career, um, culminated in, and you know, I met Malk at seven years old, right at the very beginning. Jonah Barrington was a, the national junior coach. I played played the first ever British under ten final against Peter Marshall when we were nine. <laughs> as Jonah was national coach. Uh, Malk was there, front row, you know, like the usual thing. But he, um, yeah, I got to the final of the World Junior Championships in 1990. Um, and, and then went out on the tour. I was having some really good results, but I, I, to be honest, I, I didn't. I didn't really look after myself with the with the body. And you know, back then, probably didn't have the information that's out there right now in terms of you know the way the S and C and the physio works closer together. And you know, you build a strong body, but you build a flexible body. Mm. Um, you know, if, if you get strong and you don't have that flexibility, you're going to break down. Equally, if you have flexibility but you're not strong, you will break down. And uh, that's that's what happened to me. I, I had some issues in my kind of lower back and hips area, um, and, and just didn't do enough of the right things really. And that's largely down to my own, you know, not seeking advice properly, and you know, a bit of Malk in his way, and the way that he never really looked at that properly when we were that young. Um, and and to be honest, that that probably influenced me heavily uh, with with James coming through as a young player. You know, I remember talking to James a lot about and Malk about, you know, let's not make the same mistakes I made. Um, so I've always been. So he, real... I guess he would have. Been, I mean, obviously he was on the same trajectory that you. I mean, world junior champion, and and you saw that of them. You were as close as anybody to to James at that time. Yeah, and we, you know, later on, I mean, when I was young, there was no there was no funding, there was no, um, you know. Whereas much later on, we had things like lottery, you know, lottery funding for the players. So James, in that era, kind of came into a really good time where we had the backup, the sports science backup. And if you look across all sports, you know, and you'll see it in North America, you know, even in, in England with things like soccer, you know, well, you call it soccer, but football, um, the players are just the pace of the game, everything, body shapes change, you know, rugby, um, yeah. the influx of that that professional information that real information that's coming in from things like sport you know from sports science from snc and having top people work within our sport i mean in the early days it was damon brown who you may know he's over in america coaching at the moment and yeah. uh, he he was working with england england the england teams england squash um i think he came on board full-time he started off part-time but he was a major influence in somebody like james and in fact all of our younger players like nick matthew um you know, Laura, except all these guys that came through in those early days, we were, they were introduced to this type of work. Uh, and it was, you know, look, you, you, you develop your skills and you develop your squash, but you also develop your physicality. Mm. Um, it goes hand in hand. And, and if you look at the players now that they have much longer careers, you know, yeah. back in the days when Chris Robertson, Rodney Martin, Jan, Jan, you know, they, these guys, if they got to 30, they were quite fortunate. Mm. Yeah, like sure. 30 was like the cutoff point, really. Um, you know, and I've worked very cl close with Chris Robertson, who was national coach before me. You know, worked closely with him for six years, and 
you know, he, he would say, look, we just, it was just different. We just did a very different type of training. They would kind of brutalize themselves with 400s and run themselves into the ground. And in many ways, probably a lot fitter in terms of like aerobic capacity and so on. But in terms of power and strength, I would say that the modern game, you know, that we, we actually did some studies on it um, with Stafford Murray, who was part of the sports science backup team about 10 years ago. And what we did, we looked at, 100 matches in PSA, um, men and women. Um, and it was like the kind of quarterfinals onwards of all the major events. And we took the the kind of average rally length and average time it took to play that rally uh, from 15 years, 10, 15 years prior. So back to probably 2005 area and then up to about 2015, 2018, uh, around that period. And the game... Um, hadn't changed in terms of like the average number of shots the average number of shots was around 13 say 13 shots per rally but the time it took to play those 13 shots was something like it come down from 26 seconds to 18 18 and a half seconds so it's right. the same number of shots but it's it's taken 30 it's 30 percent or 33 a third quicker the game was a third quicker yeah, i guess back um, then it would have been a lot more just sort of pure length length game yeah i think it's down to the height the tin the plastic you know the courts obviously it changed down to 17 15 american score it went to 15 american score and then 11 so there's yeah part of that but i think it was yeah it's just a lot more attritional um i mean in a, it, it was brutal in a different way i think yeah you know the influx of the egyptian game the modern game you know where they take the ball in at will and so on there's a lot more short shots going i think we calculate as well stafford's Stats were something like thirty percent more short shots um, as right. well. So, you know, if you're moving to the front and it's not going to the back, it's going to be quicker, obviously. Yeah. So, yeah, um, I, I'm starting to suffer now with lower back and hip issues, uh, uh, Dave. Um, my my squash. Uh, I mean, I'm still playing a lot, but uh, it's. I know I, I I'm likely a candidate for a hip replacement one of these uh, years, but I'm not going to do it just yet. I don't think. Well, I'll I'll join you because I'm I'm as probably as bad as you are. <laughs> yeah. yeah no it's it's a different game i think the, the influx of the sports science um has made it a major impact on the reason why players are playing you know mid-30s plus mm. you know, look at some like Nate, who's still playing top level at 37 i mean a lot of our players i think that's the one thing we've done really well in england is the, the players have known how to train and look after themselves uh, yeah. and maximize the length of their careers so, yeah, you hear a guy. I mean, I was really impressed. He didn't do, he hasn't been performing as well, I'm sure, as he'd like to. But a guy like Gregory Galtier, the way he was just moving around the court like he was a young spring chicken in, in the last, <laughs> in the last yeah. event, I could, it was unbelievable. And then I think he sort of slowed down a bit as the tournament went on, but still, uh, to be yeah, able to move around like that. Yeah, just bi biological um, things in play there, obviously with his age. But if you look at the way he trains and the way the way he, you know, he only needs to take a look at how he warms up, uh, the attention to detail, the length of time it takes, how he's, he's so thorough. Uh, I mean, all the French guys are, um, you know, and, and they're extremely physical. But uh, that's that's the reason why Greg has had such a long career. Again, he's he's had that information. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, so you, so now you are uh, obviously your national uh, team head coach, and you've been in that capacity for how long, Dave? Um, I was a national junior coach for many years. Well, I've been with England squash since 20, 
2000, uh, 2000 actually, 21 okay. years. Wow. Okay. So I ran all the junior stuff. I ran, I ran all the junior uh, stuff when when the guys were young, like Nick and Laura and Jenny Duncalf and all, you know, right. Peter Barker games. Um, yeah, so, you know, did all the world junior stuff, all the, uh, what was called the World Class Pot- Potential Program, um, which okay. was all the juniors. And then DP and Carts were the, were the kind of senior guys. Um, and they used to bring me in to assist them on the senior stuff as well. And it, it kind of went that way. And then DP left England squash in 2010. Robbo got the job, Chris Robertson. I assisted him in the seniors. Lee Drew came in and did the juniors. And then Robbo left in 2017. So I've, I've taken on that position since 2017 as the yeah. senior. Yeah. Right on. There we have it. That's a nice backstory there, David. Uh, now, uh, we're obviously we're here uh, uh, to speak about Malcolm and uh, his funeral, as we mentioned, was earlier in the week on Monday. And I gather he asked you and uh, and James to speak uh, at the at the uh, funeral. So uh, uh, that must have been uh, sort of a, a tough conversation to have. Well, how did that go? Yeah, yeah. Well, James <laughs> rang me and uh, said, "Look, Malts left. He scribbled some notes on his betting slips." Um, and, you know, he's got some very direct instructions that you'd expect. He, he asked for James and I to speak. He asked, you know, for no black at the funeral. Tracksuits encouraged, that sort of thing. And I think his final words were just just have fun, which, um, you know, despite, despite Mel being such a strict disciplinarian, you know, it was all about fun. You know, his mm-hmm. sessions were always varied and enjoyable. And Mel was, he had a, an incredible sense of humour. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's only fitting, really, that you know, if he's, I mean, he's a little bit, um, well, a lot unique, very different. Um, but the things he was requesting at the at the funeral, you just, well, it's just Malk, isn't it? You know, you don't get half expect. Absolutely, yeah. He'd have it no other way, and you and you better uh, make sure you you follow uh, his instructions, right? Usually told. <laughs> Yeah. Or, or yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, no, exactly. Well, I was going to ask you later on, but I might as well uh, ask it now. You, you did mention, you know, for such a disciplinarian, it's ironic that, you know, his sessions, a lot of them were, they were a lot of fun. So what, what would, uh, if you can look back and remember, give us some sort of uh, insight, because that, that's really key, I think, especially for young, you know, the juniors uh, just getting into the game or, you know, those who we want to continue on playing the game. They have to have fun. How did he manage uh, manifest that uh, within yeah, the disciplinary uh, aspect of his uh, of his coaching? Yeah, yeah. When, when I said a real strict discipline, it wasn't always shouting and things. It just it just very it just lay on the line. Look, this is yeah. how you behave. This is where you stand. This is you know when I'm talking, you listen. Um, you know, um, it always say as well like smile. If you weren't smiling, it'd tell you off for being grumpy. So. Um, but I think the reason why it was so enjoyable or his sessions were always fun is because it, it, it was so varied, the, the practices. And it was a lot about, you know, it was all about developing skill. So it, it always say, you know, come on, do something, express yourself. So all these commands that he lay down at you as you're practicing is not saying, look, stand here and put the elbow there and the racket here. It just say, look, you know, the ball needs to run straight. You know, if you clip the side wall, it'd, it'd tell you to make some adjustments with your feet. He's not telling you where to 
how to do that. It's just, so you kind of, you kind of engage all the time because you have to think, you have to work it out. You have to solve your own little problems. Um, and it, it's, it's, you know, it's skill acquisition and you don't realize that you are developing your skill, but you know, it's a bit like in Brazil to play, they play a lot of futsal. Everyone talks about how skillful Brazil are at football and, and, you know, places like Spain and in England, historically, we've been a little bit more about, you know, you pass the ball, you trap it, you look up, where's the space and you pass it on. Whereas in, in Brazil, because you've got, you know, so many kids and variable surfaces, sometimes they're on gravel or sand or, you know, um, and overcrowded pitches and they're just, the ball would come to them and they have, they'd have three men on them instantly and they just have to get rid of the ball. So it, it speeds up the process of how you, the kind of cognitive decision-making skills are being enhanced along with the technical skill. And, that, and that's what Malcolm did a lot of. He, you know, uh, com- loads of condition games. And, he, and he'd say, look, the game is, the game is fundamentally about being able to hit, a, you know, it's, it's, it's quite, you're in a box. And if you can put the ball, if you're hitting straight, it's got to be very straight. So you do lots of straight hitting, but then yeah. there'll be lots of games ab- above the line, below the line, you know, lots of channel games. I mean, when you when you think of uh, surfing, when you, I, I just marvel at every time I watch James play. Every time, just how accurate and everything the way, like you just said, the way he expresses himself on court. I don't, I don't think there's anyone in the game, even among the Egyptians, uh, who expresses themselves on court the way James does. Uh, he has it all. Yeah. Uh, I think what the way and you capture it there with the way you describe. Malcolm's um, approach. Yeah, and, and he would, um, you know, it's such a very simple practice. And to a lot of players, it's, it might seem quite boring, but, you know, drop and drive or straight lob and volley drop. And he'd be like, well, you need to play a backhand drop off return of serve. So it makes sense to practice that in the channel, you know, for high lob. And that's a skillful shot. If you can play a really straight high lob that doesn't go out of court, the easiest shot is the cross court one. And sometimes hit cross court doesn't really nail down your technique. You know, when you've got to hit a straight ball, that, that's you know, the game's about precision, right? So if you're trying to hit a ball straight, tight, without running, without clipping the side wall, and it's got to run through, you've got to ensure that you, you support your side on, that you've got your feet in the right place, that you're not too close. Because if, you, if you're on top of it, it's going to lead to all sorts of technical issues and, you know, the follow-through is going to be compromised and so on. Um, so Malk would just ask for something to be done and then technically you kind of work it out. You have to figure it out a little bit. And he, yeah. he would obviously, you know, keep a good eye on you and be shouting down commands like um, space or you're too close. So you, so you move away on the next one or he'd say adjust your feet, you know, on top of it or get your racket up or, you know, lots of little things. And sometimes from the back, if you're a bit heavy, a bit heavy handed, he'd, he'd say take the pace off. Very simple. And then not telling you what to do or how to do it. It's just saying the ball needs to go in a bit slower. So then you slow your racket swing down or you open your face or something, you know? And again, if you, if you turned your face over and it went in the tin, it'd say you close your racket face over the ball. So then the next time you make your own adjustments, you don't do that. So there's lots of technical instruction going on, but I think with the games, all these games that he created, um, you know, you, it's, it's actually quite fun to play them because you're always scoring them and, and sometimes you would score, sometimes you wouldn't, you know, it didn't want everything to be competitive because sometimes when you think about the score, you're not thinking about, you know, other things, but he would combine it all. So you, you have a period of time where 
it's kind of closed down to just a drop and a drive, but then he would bring in the, the game element with it and then you'd start scoring. And so he'd always be moving it on. And every day that, or every session that you go to, there'd be, be slightly different, subtle yeah. changes there or the, the order that he did things. And I don't know, it's just very, very unique in that way, I think. Um, and, and I think the group stuff that he, that he does, I mean, probably one of the reasons, I mean, in the early days when I was young, he did used to get on court. Um, you know, but he's, he was 83 this year. So, yeah. you know, the last probably 15, 20 years, he's not really been probably able to get on, on court as much. Uh, so that's one of the reasons. But the other reason is that his philosophy is that, um, you know, if you have an individual lesson and you're a parent, say, you know, and you're paying, I don't know, 30, 30 pounds, 40, 40, 45 US dollars or something. I mean, it's probably quite cheap for you guys. <laughs> but, Matt, you know, I don't know, say it's, say it's 30 quid for a, a lesson. Um, now, you're talking like 45 minutes or something like that. And it's what Malcolm would argue is that the coach is hitting the ball half the time. So it's actually about 20, 25 minutes of hitting time that's cost that parent 30 quid. Now, they probably can't, with tournaments and so on, they probably can only afford that once, twice a week. Yeah. Whereas if you provide a group scenario, um, you you can do the same for 30 quid. So charge like, say, five, six quid uh, for a group session per child. It could have four or five on a court, sometimes more, because you'd line them up, you know, and they're doing channel games and they're slotting and this, that, and the other. And, um, but they'd be paying probably the same sort of money, but they're able to play for probably an hour and 20 minutes and they're able to do that four or five times a week. Yeah. So you look at the, the number of balls that they're now hitting as five, it's fivefold, sixfold. And some of the studies with Brazil football and Liverpool football club by a guy who wrote a book called the talent code, uh, Daniel Coyle, he went all around the world studying hotbed environments, music, arts, sports, um, and he, he went to Brazil and then he went to visit Liverpool Football Club. And for these, I think the 13, 14-year-old kids uh, in, in Liverpool f- f- uh, Football Academy, and they they were kicking, I think in, in Brazil he'd calculated, that he reckoned that they were kicking the ball six or seven times more each week hmm. per session. Wow. So, yeah, and a lot of that was, you know, just because there were so many kids, high numbers. Um, right. But they were, playing, they were playing condition games, you know, condition games. So condition games, what they do, it, it, it's it's, te- it's improving your technical, you get technical adaptation whilst building your cognitive skills, your decision-making. So yeah. you, you have to choose, you have to choose what height do I go over them on this one, do I take the drop in? You know, so yeah. all Mark's condition games would be about developing decision-making. So all these players hit the ball well, it will accurately, but they also know when to hit it into that, that space. Yeah. So it, it, all his games would be about space, you know, hit, finding space. And that, that's yeah. what I notice uh, when I watch his, his players, but particularly James, I mean, his space, the spacing that he maintains throughout a match is that enables him to be, that's just why he's so accurate, isn't it? With everything. Yeah. And uh, yeah, exactly. It's just um, lots of repetition, lots of, lots of hitting, yeah. lots of, um, you know, these type of games that Malcolm would, would, uh, would, would just, you know, 
I mean, so a lot of them, I think he just created. I mean, one was called three ball, where you, you, you know, you've got three players on the court and it's a normal rally, but you follow on, you know, it's one, two, three. So if you're, if, you know, I serve, you receive, and then somebody else follows you. So the middle person's always getting a rest, not, well, not a rest, but they're always moving from a central position. Yeah. So you always have to find you always have to find space because if I put if you put me under pressure, you're not going to benefit from it. It's the person after you, right? So you're always, you know what I mean. So you, it's it's not a game where you accumulate pressure on somebody. Like in a typical rally, you put somebody under pressure and then you tighten the screw, and you know four or five shots later they hit. The, the emphasis because, emphasis is more on the quality of shot as opposed to the the putting on the on the pressure. Yeah, and they're always move. The, per, the person that's following you is generally, they've been able to, they've had time to recover their position. Yeah. Because, um, you know, one of the shots you're not hitting, are you? There's two other people hitting, you're not. So you, 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 you're able to move back into the central position again and get yourself ready. So essentially what you're doing there is you're always having to find space. Yes, yeah. So it teaches you, and, it, and Mark could say, you know, if you hit two balls straight, you'd say, right, do something. Somebody, somebody do something, it'd shout down. You know, <laughs> yeah. you, you is this something that you, you, you continue using this? Uh, obviously, you, you do uh, uh, in, within your own stuff with the Squash England? Or? Yeah, we, 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 I mean, I, I bring all, Mark's influence on me is very deep, you know, because of the time. And I've, I've been influenced by, by a lot of very, very, you know, world-class coach. I mean, David Pearson was a big influence on me, yeah. sure. Um, you know, I worked under him for a long time and he, he uh, spent a lot of time with David. I've, you know, high respect and he coaches in a different way. Mount's a bit more the kind of conditioned and, um, you know, the, the kind of group stuff, whereas DP is a lot more, I would say, technical in, in the sense that he would break it down, really right. know, take a player like Laura, 10 in the world, and, and make some real finite subtle differences at that level um you know he, he's probably the most impactful coach in that sense but in terms of like what mal does uh, you know it, it's a, it's probably a different style but yeah i mean both highly highly successful um absolutely and then obviously you know something like jonah Barrington. i mean just uh who was a catalyst for everything that we see in squash in this, in this country now, you know, and he was such a, a major inspiration on many people as well. But yeah. yeah, I've been fortunate to come across these guys, but Malcolm for me is just, it's very unique in what he does. Um, and very clever. And, you know, you ring, I mean, I, for England, working with England squash, I, I get, I also get sent on lots of different courses and things by Sport England. And, you know, they, they might send me on a skill acquisition course and I'm reading all these journals and all these research papers and things. And I have to do little things on it. And I'm thinking, well, that just sounds like Malk. That's Malk. <laughs> and then when you, when you go and talk to Malk, he doesn't really articulate that. He just does it because it's just, he just knows that it works. Right. Um, right. But all these researchers, you know, what they're describing to me when I'm reading about it is, is what Malk does. Right. You know, so if you're looking to develop skill and build skill, it's. That's awesome. Well, uh, let, let's speak um, a little bit more about sort of, uh, you know, Malcolm and, and your experiences with him. Now, I wanted to ask you about the bands. And, and uh, as I said to you earlier, it just seems to me that uh, getting banned, the band is sort of like a badge of honor almost, uh, at least to a few of the guys that I've spoken to. They, they kind of uh, sort of uh, like telling those stories. So 
um, can can you tell a sort of a what was Mal what was the Malcolm ban sort of all about? Because uh, I've heard about it several times, and what were uh, some of its various forms uh, 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 that you've come across, anyways? Yeah, he, look, he, I think it's all that consequence, and he knew that by taking squash away from you, it's a, it's a consequence. So you just don't do it again. And quite often he wouldn't, you know, he would shout, but quite often he just didn't need to. So put a ban in place. You know, we've all, <laughs> it is a bit of a badge of honor, I guess. Um, but yeah, just lots. I mean, I, obviously I lived with him for a long time. I was, you know, and he probably banned me a bit more than he would others um, for some silly little things like, you know, I used to slam doors when I ran for the school bus, for example, if I was late out of the house. And, you know, after repeated attempts of telling me off for not slamming doors, It'd just give me a week's ban. And then to this day, I don't slam doors anymore. You know, it's things like that. <laughs> yeah. he, he would, you know, you might think it's a bit overboard, but, you know, and if if you behave badly, that was his number one thing. You know, if you just, if you were rude, disrespectful, he just didn't want to see you for a week. So you just get a ban. You know, <laughs> that, and that would be it. <laughs> and it was, it was very matter of fact, but you knew that, you, you know, you knew where the, the lines were and that was that, and you just had to take it. And Yeah, you probably knew when it was coming, didn't you? I mean, you, you know, if you were arguing with a referee during a match and then uh, you knew that the ban was going to come uh, uh, shortly thereafter. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so you just didn't do it, you know, no. and it gets ingrained into you. So, but he's doing it for the right reason. He's not, you know, he, he didn't do it uh, in a way to harm anybody or anything. It's just, it's just how he is, and you can't, you can't argue with that because the people that he's um, had an impact on, have, you know, a lot of people have gone on to be to do really well all around the world. You know, people that have, people that he's got rid of. That you know, some of the tributes that me and James were laughing about it. Um, we were, uh, our kids were playing together last Saturday and we were just going through some of the stories with Malcolm reminiscing a little bit had a couple of beers and you know it was nice but he um, we were just laughing about well that person you know got rid of them but look at what they've wrote <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but they, they, gen they genuinely did feel even though he got rid of them after a while they they did change their behaviour because of coming across Malcolm and I think they did in the end realise that and um, there's some nice things to say about him. So that's, you know, that's, I mean, that's fantastic, really. Yeah. One thing that really strikes me uh, about, uh, sort of, I guess, James is sort of, uh, you know, when, when he plays, it, it, you, he could get the, the worst call uh, against him or, you know, several calls in a match. And, and he doesn't say, he barely, you know, he, he'll barely say anything. He never argues. And then he just gets on with the match and generally, uh, it doesn't seem to affect him or impact him in any negative way uh, at all. He just gets on and continues to play great squash. Uh, and uh, I think that should be, uh, that's a great lesson for, for anybody who has trouble sort of refocusing after, I mean, some guys did it well, they, they would argue with the referee and that would spur them on. But uh, uh, for James, yeah. it, it uh, you know, it did, he, he did it a different way. I think for most people, I mean, you know, you've got to think, well, arguing with the referee is a distraction. You can't control the external factors like you, what your opponent's doing, their antics. You can't control what the referee decides if the ball's down or out. Um, okay, you've got the video review, but just put your hand up and ask for the review. There's no point arguing with that person that's in the chair because you've yeah. got the review anyway. So Mal, Mal was, 
you know, be very matter of fact, you know, look, you can't control, just control what you can control. They make a decision whether it's right or wrong. You know, that person in the chair, they've got children, they've got wives, they're a dad, they've got, you know, the, the decent people, you know, be respectful, talk to them in a proper way. You know, if you want to review it, that's fine. But, you know, move on. If the decision doesn't go your way, then move on because all you're thinking about is, is the distraction and the, the next two or three points or the next rally at least could be an issue. And, and more often than not, you see that, you know, how often do you see a player where they, they kick off at a referee and get upset and then the next rally or two, they just they haven't quite refocused, you know, and they've, they've hit the tin or they've, they've lost the concentration. Yeah. So James was very, very good at that, you know, and that, that obviously Mal could instill that in from, from humble beginnings, really. Mm, absolutely. Now, uh, uh, you, you tell this great story about uh, some world-class uh, rugby players who came, I think maybe it was in Pontefract, I'm not quite sure, but uh, they came for a squash clinic uh, with Malcolm. And these guys were uh, the world-class rugby guys. Uh, what, uh, can, can you take us back and uh, tell us what, uh, what happened uh, uh, there? They, there was a band or almost a, a, a band there. Uh, um, yeah, well, not quite, but it, it, Malcolm just sorted it out in a matter of seconds like he would. But basically, he'd asked me to come across and help him. Where he had a team of world-class rugby players that his good friend Tony Smith had brought across, um, you know, to, to just have a change of scenery, really. Um, and he Mal basically got, got the group and he lined them up at the start. They'd never played squash or never been to met Malcolm before. So he just um, lined them up told them exactly how he wanted them to behave, you know, what he expects of them, just like he was talking to a group of juniors. You know, but adults need this as well, you know. It's yeah. like, <laughs> um, Sometimes and then, <laughs> Yeah. And then he's, uh, he's he set them up on court and he's instructing them and he's, he's shouting down a few bits and pieces and, you know, get your feet in place and all that kind of stuff like he does. And, you know, they're having a bit of fun on there, obviously, and he told them to have fun. But uh, one of the players was struggling. So he, as he's given a little bit of guidance to them, there was another guy on the court. Um, I can't remember his name, but he, he was a top, top player. And he, he was like quite, quite loud. He was talking loudly. Mal couldn't really be heard. He couldn't hear himself speaking to this other guy. So he just, he, he just put a stop to it. He just shouted down in, in his typical Malcolm way. Um, hey, hey, excuse me. You are being very rude. I don't care how good you are at rugby, but when I'm talking, you keep quiet and listen. And this guy kind of just looked up at him and it, it, it just sorted him out. I mean, literally, like, it just within a matter of seconds, uh, he went from being a bit boisterous and, you know, a bit of a, a loud mouth, I guess. And he just, he be, for the rest of the session, he, his behavior was impeccable. Um, yeah. Well, he probably, he probably appreciated Malcolm for doing that, and, you know. He got his respect, that for sure. That's for yeah, sure. and the rest of the guys on the court and, on, and across the courts, because you could probably hear it across the courts. And Mal just uh, he just put him in his place straight away. And you know, Tony Smith turned to me and went, "Wow, you know." And Tony was is a world class coach. I mean, by any stretch, um, and you know, and he, he could coach in any sport. He's just an unbelievable guy. And, and, and that, I mean, as Malcolm, yeah, Malcolm was a rugby coach. He, he actually taught well, at like, Gresham. Yeah, he taught at Gresham. Well, he probably wasn't intimidated uh, by these massive, uh, I don't know if these guys were, were big guys, but uh, 
Uh, yeah, record players can tend to be quite big. <laughs> yeah, but Tony Smith just, uh, you know, he used to bring players across just so he could watch Malcolm. Okay. Yeah, how, he handled, how he handled them and, and so on. And he, and he said he learned a lot from him that way. Yeah. I don't know if you uh, if you knew any of the, the Welsh uh, Pro League rugby players, but a, a friend of mine, I gave him a, he's not a, not a real, not a close friend, but uh, I used to give him squash lessons way back in the day. His name is Rod Snow. Canadian uh, pro, he played for Wales, play, played in the pro league uh, there in Wales for a few years, but he was yeah. huge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was no, afraid, I was afraid, afraid of him. <laughs> these guys aren't, aren't small, and you know, Mark no. certainly wasn't intimidated. But uh, no, no, that's imp- that's impressive. Yeah. Uh, now Simon Park, uh, 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 you listened to to his episode, I, I guess. He told this yeah. uh, a great story about how when he was playing, uh, he got caught by Malcolm playing racquetball with yeah. uh, with another guy. And uh, during while he was getting uh, balled out by Mac- Malcolm, his glasses started steaming up, and that made them giggle. Uh, so th- that that's happened on a few occasions, uh, has it? With, with yeah, the glasses another one. Up there? Yeah, I had another <laughs> one um, where I told it at the funeral. It, yeah, I had Peter Marshall and Kirk, you, you won't know this guy, Kirk Andrews, another good player, uh, did, went on to do something else. But yeah, they were staying with us at the time. We, used to, we always used to have people come and stay with us, you know, like for a week at a time and things like that, school holidays. But yeah, so we decided to go out one night um, and we came back. Mal didn't approve. He'd, he'd left the key. So the door was locked, but he'd, he'd put the key in the door on the other side. So when okay. I came to... We came back at something like 2.30 in the morning, drunk, and uh, I was trying to get my key in the door, and I couldn't get it in, and I couldn't understand why. <laughs> so I had, to, I, had to knock, I had to knock them out of bed, obviously. My mum and Malcolm, mum came down, and she said, look, Mal's really pissed off. Just go straight to bed. Don't make a sound. Just go straight to bed. So we're walking up the stairs, and the thing is, I mean, we're just, I, you know, I was drunk, and I, I'm knocking – knocking pictures off the wall and halfway up the stairs and things like that and just making a right racket and we're giggling away and, and Marsh is, you know, he's, he's, we're all a bit silly and stuff. Anyway, got back and I think uh, Marsh was on the floor in my room and Kurt was in the spare room, but uh, James was was young at the time. And and then it must have been probably 6 a.m. So I've been in bed for, just had a probably two or three hours sleep or something or three hours sleep, 6 a.m., Got a knock on the door. Mal walks in, and he goes um, up. No response. I'm fast asleep, but you know, I just heard this thing, this noise up, up now. So kind of shut up, and it's pitch black. I couldn't see anything, and then I just heard Mal say, um, he, he said, "Right downstairs, you you three now." He got Kirk out of bed as well. He said, "Right downstairs now." So getting up we're getting dressed and you know trying to put something on and um and i just heard him say to mum uh he, he said you need to keep james upstairs because this is going to be heavy yeah. and uh, i just knew we were in trouble got downstairs his line is up and same thing with parky he, he his glasses he, he got into a bit of a rage and he's shouting and he's kind of directing at me really um and you know it's Glasses were steaming up. He was frothing at the mouth, you know. That, and he had this; his hair was everywhere, you know. And it just 
stains on his t-shirt or something I don't know, it just looked a right mess I'm, I'm just thinking oh my god I'm still drunk here and I, I just got the giggles and it it just sent him into an absolute rage and um, yeah I got a month banned for that yeah. Oh no! <laughs> so what, what what happens when you're banned for a month? Like what what do you do? Like what 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 did you end up doing during that month? Uh, I guess you did you uh, probably worked harder. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, look, look, when you're that when you're young and you've got people coming to stay with you. I mean, I, I remember Peter Marshall, or it might have been Simon actually that that week when he banned me down there. Um, we were down in Norfolk, and so I'd have my friends come and stay with me. And I'd be getting the ban and then they'd, they'd be getting the benefit of all the training with each other. And I had to just go out and play with my mates on my bike or something, you know, after school. Um, so did a ban mean you weren't allowed to play squash? Is that like you couldn't just pitch up at another club or if there was one nearby or? Oh, no, it just banned me from the club. So, okay. yeah, I'd, I'd, either go, I'd either go elsewhere or something or, you know, I'd find something else to do for a little while. But, um, yeah, he's just making his point, really. And uh, I mean, look, he was a difficult guy. You know, it's like we said that James and I both said at the funeral, he's got his complexities. He's a difficult man at times. You know, you can't sanitize it really. I mean, his relationship with his, with Christie, you know, Christie was a very, very successful player and world junior number three, I think, with in the same age group as Christie. That's his youngest, his, sorry, his oldest son, right? His oldest son, yeah. And he, he was a fantastic squash player. And, um, and, you know, he had issues there with Christy and Sarah and, and Louise, his youngest daughter. You know, there's been some real difficult moments. I mean, there was times with with Malk, it was really hard because, you know, he's married to my mum, but um, they'd have these kind of disagreements or the way sometimes he did things or whatever. But, you know, there's a lot of respect as well, obviously, but sometimes, you know, he might overstep the mark a little bit. Um, they went through a divorce. That was a difficult time. You know, a difficult time for James and I. Um, you know, seeing mum upset and obviously Malk as well and having to deal with it. Um, you know, there was some real difficult moments in there. And I think, you know, even though my mum, you know, she she died of cancer at 53 uh, when James was 16. And that was really hard for James, you know, obviously losing his mum at 16. Yeah. Um, you know, a little bit easier for me. I, I had my life, you know, and uh, I'd... I was living elsewhere, but James at 16, you, you know, you'd be living at home, you need your mum. And so I, you know, I, I I took it upon myself a little bit with James, you know, my auntie, my mum's twin sister who lived around the corner from mum, you know, and he, he went and would stay there a lot and Mal could then come and pick him up from mum, uh, from Joan's house, mum's sister, take him to school. I'd go across there a lot and spend time with him and stuff, but it was a difficult period and Mal got a bit funny with, with us, with James, with me, he didn't like the fact that he was spending time at Jones. He wanted to be the one that wanted to, you know, and there's some, there some real tough moments in there. But despite all of that, my mum never stopped loving him. You know, and I said that at the end of the funeral, you know, right to the day that, the day before, Mal was at the hospital and, you know, she was, he was there with, with her as well. Um, I think they'd been divorced about four or five years. Right. Um, but they, they had a great relationship and, yeah, James is largely down to, I mean, obviously he's got a lot of milk in him, but he's also got a lot of my mum in him. Mm. You know, the way that they shape James together. Yeah. So I spoke to James uh, on the podcast and I really found him to be, as you know, very, very engaging and, uh, 
you know, he, he's got his, obviously a little, like you said, a little bit of Malcolm in him, but he's, uh, I didn't know your mom, obviously, but he's definitely got another side to him too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and look, she, they, they complement each other really well, mum and Malcolm, mm. you know, they're, they're a great team together really. And you know, it was a shame that they had to go through that divorce because it, it just got quite difficult, you know, with Malcolm at times, but you know, she was, she was a major, she's a major reason why James is like he is. You know, there's, there's obviously a lot of Malk, you know, as you know, like, <laughs> you can see with, I can see Malk in him, uh, his expressions, the way he talks, he, he's, you know, James is, is, is highly intelligent and he, you know, he, he's a very deep thinker, just like Malcolm, you know, thinks about a lot of things and um, he's very talented, you know, he, but having said that, you know, you talk about talent and we, it was something I was wanted, wanted to talk about with James, really. Um, I don't know if you want me to move on to that, but when mm. when he was very young. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. We talk I mean, about James and this being a this amazing talent, but I'd say that, and I think Parky, Simon Park alluded to it, when we were in Norfolk when James was born, um, so I'd have been 12, and we moved to Norfolk when mum was pregnant with James and he was born down in Norfolk and um, yeah, right from, right from the off really, we, as a little toddler, you know, when he was, as soon as he could walk, he was, we, he, he always had, we always had balls and things. We had, we had a spare room in the, it was like two cottages knocked into one. Right. And half of the house was like a bit of a play, you know, like we, we, we turned the other lounge into like a play area. Um, but he didn't have toys and stuff necessarily. Well, he did, but lots and lots of balls, lots of things that he could, you know, and he used to, we used to just go in there and I'd play with him and just throw things at him. And, you know, Malt was brilliant. You know, he, he would take him down the club and throw things at, throw him on a court and in his little baby walker and all different shapes and sizes of the balls and things and just throwing, kicking, catching, uh, he was always doing things like that. And then as soon as he could hold a racket and walk and two and a half years of age, he was on the court hitting a ball. Um, uh, yeah. And we used to do it in the room actually back at the house because it was like a little square room and white walls. And we just used to, just, uh, I used to just tap balls to him all the time. And, and then at the club as well, he'd just go on court. Whenever there was a free court, he'd just go on there and just hit the ball against the wall or somebody would jump on with him. So I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is that he's got people around him that are talking squash. He's got players coming to stay, top juniors, top seniors. You know, we had some really good players come down there. Gwen Bryars, yeah. um, when he was four in the world, he used to come and stay with us. Um, Zane Sally, David Lloyd, who was a brilliant, brilliant squash player. Um, you know, all the juniors, Marsh, Parkey, there's loads of people who used to come and stay. And so you imagine you've got like James in his high chair and we're having dinner at at night because these people have come and stay for like a week or two weeks at a time and so you kind of with Malk and you're in the house and you're talking to a bit of squash and you're around the dinner table and it's all going in with James and then he's at the club and we're kind of you must have, you must have seen this you saw this happen before your eyes like the the whole thing like yeah. James just yeah. what you know growing into uh ultimately yeah. the world number one yeah, and it's just all, all that information that you don't realise it's just going in subconsciously. And I, I remember reading a, uh, about Tiger Woods, how everyone talked about this amazing talent that burst onto the scene when he was 15 years of age. 
um, and he was taking, you know, winning major tournaments. And I think his dad said something like, well, you know, he's, he's been playing golf for 13 years or something. It's no <laughs> yeah. surprise. His dad, his dad was a teacher, they like Malcolm. His dad was a teacher. He was a scratch golfer and he had this net in the garage and he used to just hit balls into this net. And, um, and Tiger being the... Yeah, he had, he had a better swing than I did when he, when he, than I do when he was like four. So Yeah. Three or four. And he's just yeah. watching all the stuff going on. He's, he's watching his dad hit a ball and his dad hit the ball really well. And, you know, and he's played golf since he, he could walk, really. And there's no... It's not about necessarily talent. The talent was nurtured. You know, it was the environment that gave him that. And the, you know, the, the, yeah, just that... I guess they call it chance, don't they? The chance that you're born into that environment. So James was born into an environment that, you know, he got Malcolm, he got myself, he got other players around all the time and and so on. So, yeah, I mean, um, it, it's not... And the thing is with Malcolm, it's not like a one-off. He's done this yeah. everywhere he's gone. Yeah. You know, Cassie, uh, Cassie was produced from North Walsham. She hit her first ball, you know, practically with Malcolm hmm. and we were there for five and a half years. And by the time we left Norfolk, she was the best junior in Europe, if not the world. Right. Uh, you know, within the space of going from nothing, you know, from not playing the game to at 15, being the best, best 15 year old in the world. Cassie Jackman, now Cassie Campion. Uh, Matt Thomas. Was it? Sorry. Cassie, Cassie Thomas now. Cassie She's Thomas. Really okay. Married. Yeah, yeah, she's yeah. remarried. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean that's um, but Malcolm's done that, he's done that in many places, several places. He's done that wherever he's gone. He his system that hasn't really changed, it's probably evolved, but hasn't really changed drastically from I mean, I remember at seven years of age when I first started with Malcolm at Walton Hall, and he had all these top players, Gwen Bryers, Ian Robinson. Uh, Zane Sally, uh, Ashton Naylor. I mean, you, you know, you might not remember a lot of these guys, but these were, it was like the England. Yeah, a lot of those names ring a bell. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. And I used to come home from school and a friend of mine first started playing and I, I jumped on and Mal saw me and started coaching me. But uh, within a year, a year and a half, you know, uh, I was on national squads with Jonah Baronson at under 10 level. Um, and I remember doing drop and drive with Gwayne Bryars, who was, you know, top five player yeah. in the world. And Malk had me doing drop and drive with him. And like I alluded to in, in uh, you know, my speech at the funeral, Malcolm would have world-class players mixing with juniors and, and the club players because he could make the practice valid. If you're working in straight lines, as long as that player can control a ball into a, an area, like a play a reasonable backhand drop, it's still valid for that player at the front who's practicing their straight drives. And he, Malcolm felt that I was, you know, even at such a young age, I could just put a backhand drop in from deep, going bryes. It's, it's enough for him to practice his, to feed him to play his straight drives. And he made it valid. And I think that's what it was all about, really. It, it was good life lessons because it's, it's teaching you humility that you're not yeah. better than anybody else. It's about giving back. So I'm on court with going bryes when I'm eight, nine, nine years of age. And then when I'm getting ready for the World Juniors at 18, Malt's got me on court with Lee Beach, who's 10. Right. And doing, doing the very, and doing the very same thing. And I, I thought nothing of that. And you don't because that's what Malcolm, how he brought you up. 
Yeah, yeah Nick Taylor told a great story as well about uh, I think one of the one of his juniors from Jersey he sent over to Malcolm and uh, just so happened that um, James and Sorf Gosel were the only two guys that you know there at that time and and he was on there training with them for the whole time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Malcolm wouldn't think anything of that. Yeah, that would be, and neither would Sorrow. Nor would they, it. right? Yeah, no. And that be that's normal. That happens all the time. Yeah, that's yeah. normal. That's normal. Well, the proof is in the pudding. I mean, that 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 definitely works. Uh, uh, Malcolm's approach. Now, um, if you if you were obviously you, you spoke to Malcolm about you know James's accomplishments and, and things like that. Um, so, what would you say uh, he would have been most proud of in terms of all of his accomplishments maybe maybe it's something about just James as a player or or you know being world number one or winning the the Commonwealth Games uh, the gold medal finally uh, yeah I, I tell you what this is a really tough one because I wouldn't say it's necessarily squash hmm. um, he was very proud of his writing he used to talk to me endlessly about his writing I mean his writing is incredible um, he's acting yeah, we, we were at a show just pre-COVID, actually, um, a local theatre amateur um, play that James, amateur dramatics, and James had a lead role in that. And I'll talk more about that than he did about James getting to World Number One. Or, yeah. you know, that, that time in India when we were all there. And I mean, he was very proud of that when, when he beat Gaultier to go to World Number One in India. Yeah, because I was there, Mick was there, Vanessa and, and Mal, you know, and he had to play this match to beat Greg and he got to world number one. So yeah, clearly Mark's very proud of that, but he, he's really proud of the way he was really, you know, how he, how he'd kind of developed and proud of the way that he, you know, he could write and he could act and he could play squash, but he's also very respectful and, you know, he, he didn't, <laughs> didn't um, argue with refs. And I don't know, just there's so many things he was very proud of him for, but I think the, the winning titles, um, I think he just wanted him to perform and play well. Mm. And if you won things, it was a bonus, which sounds a bit woolly, but, you know, uh, Mount was all about the process. Yeah. I was just going to say that. It seemed that's what it seems like. He's, he was more about the process. And if you, you know, did your best, you know, on the day and, you know, left it out on the court and played. You know, you're respectful in, in all of the things that he holds uh, in, in in regard. Then, then he would have been happy. Yeah, and he and he wanted you to play the game in a way that you you know, in an, in an, he wanted you to to entertain. Really, he wanted players to express and entertain and make the game attractive. Um, but equally, you know, he wants you to play to your own style and personality. Like Lee, Lee was quite straight, wasn't he? Lee Beach was yeah. was quite straight. I mean, very, very brilliant player and very, very subtle in how how he did things. Had a great hold and things. And yeah, I mean, that's another one. Like Mal could just shout from the, his balcony, you know, the perch, and he'd yeah. just shout down like delay. So you'd start delaying, you know, you'd start putting a little pause in your swing yeah. and finding out how to take someone's movement away. But he wouldn't necessarily tell you exactly how to do it. It just shout it down, and you start doing it. And see so when it just makes me laugh. So you see some like Lee. It was brilliant at that, on a, particularly on the backhand, where he just it looked like he was going to play a drop and then he'd just send it long. And the players would be going to cover the drop and they'd be back there somewhere. 
the ball will be back in 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 behind. And that's just just Malcolm repeatedly shouting down those commands. You know, do something, delay. Well, that, I mean, James has one of the greatest holds ever. Ever. I mean, he just yeah. hold, hold, hold from the back, the 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 back backhand uh, uh, corner, that backhand drop that that he'll uh, he'll play. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think Mal just wanted everybody to whoever came and saw him, and you know, just wants you to um, just make the game a little bit more interesting, I guess. Mm. And I think he, he just felt if all well, everything he did was about that, and and if you went on to win, you know, fine. But as long as you try, you know, try to do things and try and express yourself and be creative and all that kind of thing. You know, and if you didn't see you hitting the ball into space, they'd tell you you're not hitting hit the ball into space. So you work things out, you you improve, you get a lot better. And then the results kind of follow. And yeah. it may be sometimes, I mean, it is all about ranking. It's all about winning. We know that. And life is competitive. Um, but Malk would have that as an end goal, that the outcome that you're looking to achieve. But before you get that, because that's in the future, you can't control that. But what you can control is is what you do now, day to day, that yeah. leads to that outcome. So if you get two results focused, and you see it with the parents at tournaments, you know, with the kids, um, it's all about winning and the ranking. And they start, you know, they might complain about a ranking saying, well, so-and-so has gone above them and, you know, they're just so heavily focused on the ranking, whereas Malcolm would not really, or James, they're not really interested in ranking at all. Mm. You know, James would be like, well, if I'm 30 in the world or 20 in the world, it doesn't really matter. You know, so he doesn't get too bothered about. Yeah, I mean, playing. James was worried about the rank. I mean, James is obviously still competing now and, and he's not ranked as highly as he once was, but he's still playing tremendous squash. And I think, you know, whenever he plays, people are going to watch because, it, as you said, it's always interesting to watch, watch him express himself, and he must still enjoy it. Yeah, I never heard him say ever, I'm going to be world number one or get to world number one. You know, he, he, he'd never taken that for granted that he would automatically do that or he would be there. Or, you know, I'm sure he probably thought about where he'd like to be, but it was all about it, the, the now, the day, that day. So just give his best all the time. I think that's what Malkin still in as well, you know, and, and you see it in James particularly because he's been such a high level player. But in all his players, that's what he instills. Um, do your best, try hard. You know, be, I mean, obviously the behaviour stuff we know about, but um, it was it, more important to him that you actually gave. You know, you looked at the performance, and that's what you can control. What you do right now. Yeah. It kind of leads to the results, don't it? Yeah, but David. I mean, I've got a, a bunch more questions here, but I think I think we we could leave it on that. Uh, this has really been a fantastic uh, conversation. Is there anything uh, you want to say? Just sort of uh, uh, final words. Um. Yeah, I, th I think I think between me, Nick, and Simon, by the sounds, it probably you know everyone's got a, a good idea of what Mal's about. But um, yeah, I mean, I just I just hope I think. His legacy is will continue at Pontefract. I mean, I talked to Nick about this recently, and I've got some really good people at the, at the club there that that have already got things in place. The system's there. Um, you know, Malk is he is irreplaceable. You know how he 
what what he does, no one else can do. You can't copy that. Um, but I think what he's left is is a really good way and system that that hopefully the club can continue with. Um, and yeah, he's just going to be massively missed, isn't he? You know, is yeah, it's a big loss for everybody for sure. Absolutely. Well, uh, David, I really appreciate your time here. We had uh, tremendous, as you said, uh, Simon and Nick came on and gave uh, uh, excellent tributes, and, and this was really a, a great way to cap it all off. Um, I'd love to have you back on again sometime down the road. Uh, we can talk more uh, squash, uh, but uh, this is for Malcolm, and uh, appreciate you and appreciate your time. Yeah, great. Nice to uh, nice to be on here, Jerry. Thanks for inviting me on. Well, many thanks to David for that, and I really appreciate his time. I know it must be a really difficult period for him, for James and their family, so I appreciate him very much for sharing uh, those stories, his thoughts uh, in such a forthright and such a you know passionate way. And I guess you know uh, we're here to celebrate uh, Malcolm's life, which is what we did with these three uh, tributes. Uh, and I'd also like to give a shout out again to uh, Nick Taylor and Simon. Park for also sharing uh, their tributes with us. Uh, some fantastic stuff there between uh, Simon, Nick, and uh, David. So uh, thanks to them for for that. And once again, our deepest condolences go out to David, James, and their family uh, at the passing of um, of Malcolm. Now, in terms of the podcast we have coming up, uh, Sabrina Sobe uh, early in the uh, next week, and that'll be really great. We've had Amanda on, and uh, anyone. Who's seen Sabrina play uh, knows exactly how how good of a player she is. She, in my estimation, gives anyone in the top ten a very difficult time. Time, and I don't think any of them would relish uh, that in an early round match in a, in a big event. And uh, Sabrina has proven in the past that she's uh, up to that task. She's come close and actually beaten uh, some very uh, some some players well above her ranking. So it'll be great to have her on the pod. I'm a huge fan of uh, Amanda's. Obviously, she's played some tremendous squad and really raise the bar there and Sabrina as well so looking forward to speaking with her early in the week and I'd just like to give a shout out as well to uh, some people uh, one person uh, who, who uh, donated to the podcast Brendan Lawton thank you for the drop in in the hat and if anyone's looking uh, would or would like to uh, to drop a few coins in the hat you can do so on the PayPal uh, on the PayPal link I guess it's called on the sound cloud uh, page where you can find the podcast some some of the apps they won't have that so no worries but if you're on the song, uh, soundcloud page and you see uh, the link to the paypal you can uh, throw a few coins in the hat there but it's not necessary uh, but if you want to go ahead anyhow everybody uh, take care and uh, really appreciate all of you who are listening please share these with your squash community on social media there's a lot of good ones out there and we're hoping to have a few uh, good ones coming up uh, we've got the big number 200 uh, fast approaching and i still not sure how that's going to uh, play out but uh, with any luck we'll have uh, we had jp on for 100 so we have to do uh, something special for 200 don't we anyhow everyone take care i hope you're well played safe uh hope you're getting out on the squash court if you can if not hang in there and uh, you'll be back on court soon. Take care. Have a great day. Goodbye now.